Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. 2 Peter chapter 1, we get to start off on a new book. It begins, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So as we get into the second letter, there's a few things to know about context. First Peter was, we just finished up with that. That was written for a very particular purpose. They were encouraging the church as persecution started to arise. Since then, persecution has come to Peter's doorstep. He's in jail, he's in prison, he knows he's going to be crucified, as we'll see later in the chapter. So this is really one of the last things we have from Peter. It was held as a letter by the church uh, to be encouragement, um, but on top of encouragement, to deal with false teaching and the pressures that were coming onto the church. So 1 Peter was kind of encouragement while you get pressure from outside, Second Peter is more, how do we deal with pressure on the inside? What do we do ourselves to deal with kind of what's going on in the church? So Second Peter warns of false teaching. And first, the first chapter doesn't get into that as much, but it's set up for basically how you deal with stuff in the church that's going on that's an issue. Um, and so this is, a, I think, a great letter to dig into. Um, in the early church respected Peter, regarded Peter, and held on to this letter as one of the last things he wrote because of who he was. And I think it's it's important to know that there's been some time that's passed since the Gospels. The Peter that made all the mistakes in the Gospels seems to be regarded as one of the believers that's just a solid rock, just like Jesus called him, Peter. In the introduction, though, we see a lot of what's gone on in his heart. First of all, in verse 1, he says, Simon Peter. So it's interesting to see that where the church is now calling him Peter, when he introduces himself, he uses his old name and his new name. That the older and more mature Peter gets, the more he remembers where he came from. That, and I think that as you grow in the faith, you realize how far you are from the old person that you used to be. That moment where you decide, I'm going to serve the king with everything I've got is a starting point. And as you go further along for Peter, he's like, I'm Simon Peter. I'm the guy that's been transformed. So he remembers his old self. We should note that he does that without shame. Like he's not ashamed of who he was because who he was, as shameful as that was, is simply a remembrance of what God can do in somebody's life. Where he was unfaithful, now he's faithful. Jesus gave him that name Peter because I think Jesus was prophetically saying what he would be and how solid Peter's thinking would be. So Peter has a clarity about him, about how to fight evil and how to do it with holiness. Uh, you could say that that transition that Peter made from lost to found makes him the first trans Christian, right? He's transformed from his old self to his new self. A bondservant and apostle is how he defines it. Um, first, a bondservant is a voluntary servant. That's the most important part of who he is. He's voluntary. The second important part about who he is is that he's a messenger. So he's a voluntary servant and a master, a messenger of the king. Galatians 1.10, Paul says the same thing. 
For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The choice to serve the king is also the choice to not worry about pleasing other people as much. I please God first. And God wants us to serve other people, so right relationships are an important part of it. But that idea that Peter first defines himself as a bondservant and a messenger means he's serving the king. Of Jesus Christ, the anointed one, Jesus anointed or the Messiah, to those who have obtained like precious faith. That would be all of us. Anyone that's serving Jesus or seeking to serve Jesus. Broadly, the entire church. Another reason this letter is kept is because it got read in church after church after church around the Mediterranean. It would just get copied and passed on to the next church. So, those who have obtained like precious faith. We don't obtain our grace by doing anything, but we do work at our faith. We do work out our faith. Um, it does grow. The basic level of faith that you need is the belief that Jesus rose from the dead for your sins. That's salvation. But that walk in the faith is something that develops and grows over time. And Jesus just needs you to have that little starting point for him to grow something pretty amazing in your life. This is a precious faith. There's nothing more valuable. It's described as a pearl by Jesus. To place your faith in Jesus is the first and most precious thing that you can do in your life. And then it says with us. So those who have like precious faith with us. Faith here is in the context of the church. Part of where faith grows, we're going to see in this chapter, is within the context of the church. And then by the righteousness of God, because we don't have our own righteousness, we have God's righteousness. So you get a ton of theology in this first sentence. And the way Peter frames it and who he's talking to, he's defining the terms of the discussion. So if you're outside of some of these things, then this discussion doesn't pertain to you as much. So the fact that it's by the righteousness of God is both that God is righteous, that's the law, and that our precious faith is obtained by his righteousness and living rightly, the way he made that path is the cross, and that we gain faith by living by it, by the righteousness of our God, or more so the way of Jesus Christ. So we have right living, righteousness, the law. We have our faith the, in the cross, and that we have a gain process, which is called the way or the path that we follow in Christ. All of that in kind of one sentence. By our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He gives Jesus two different titles here. Um, there's little doubt about how this looks. There's different translations in how this looks. But there's no doubt that Peter's calling Jesus both God and Savior in this line. So this is theologically the point. Jesus is God. It's not separate from God, though there may be Jehovah's Witnesses that would say otherwise. Jesus is God, and when, and when he calls Jesus our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Greek really bears this out. Peter's belief is that Jesus was God, even though he walked with him for three years in the flesh. Um, so what happened and what were those experiences? You've got to go back to the gospel to see why he thinks Jesus is God. In the letter, though, he makes that an assumption of what's going on. The assumption is the belief that Jesus is God. Then you get to verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by the glory and virtue, by which we've been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. One of my issues when I just read through the Bible 
is if I'm trying to read through the Bible in a year, I'll go through passages like that. And to slow down and take your time with each of those parts and phrases, there's tons of riches in there. But if you're just trying to crank through, you can read through verses 2 through 4 fairly fast and just miss some of the roots of what Peter's giving us. Again, when they composed letters, they would carefully compose letters, right? They were expensive paper. The ink wasn't cheap. He had a, usually had somebody with him helping him to write it. So it was quite an endeavor to sit down and write these. And I think that that was a blessing because we see in the epistles, even with Paul, of great care that's taken in what words they use and how they frame it. And we get inside the head of a first-person disciple of Jesus Christ and how to perceive our lives and how to go about doing our lives. In verse 2, it starts with grace and peace. These are the two most precious blessings that he can think of after that initial faith in Christ. That faith in Christ leads to God's grace in our life, which is to give us things we don't deserve. Mercy is to not punish us for what we do deserve. Grace is to give us blessings that we don't deserve, to add something to our life. And then peace, that idea, and, and again, this gets so underwhelmed in a very busy culture that we live in. Peace is the goal, to just have a settled heart. And everything in the world wants to stir up our heart, like stir in soup. But the idea of just having peace to be settled is one of those things that Peter is wishing for all the believers, knowing that that's one of the hardest things to attain. That peace is precious. And then he prays for it to be multiplied to you. The more of these things we get, the more I think our walk shows the rewards prior to death. Like our life gets better with, when we add grace and when we add peace to it, and it's multiplied. Then I want to point out this, the knowledge. In the knowledge of God, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. What does that mean? What knowledge are we supposed to have? I know Jesus died on the cross. I know he did it for my sins. I know that if I follow Jesus, I'm promised eternal life. So what further knowledge of God should I have? The knowledge becomes then our immediate pursuit if we want grace and peace, the way Peter set up this sentence. So if I want those things in my life, I'm supposed to pursue this knowledge of God. Well, what does that look like? Knowledge is not passive. In fact, the word that's used in the Greek here is a word for exacting, complete, fullness, or a full understanding of God. So we can get saved with a very limited understanding of God, but the grace and the peace that comes in our life comes as we expand that knowledge. Knowledge then isn't something that we do inactively. It's something that we actively pursue. Knowledge includes God's word. It includes prayers getting answered. That's a way to know God. It includes the community of God's church where other believers minister one to another and you see God's love through that. And it includes the Holy Spirit, a direct interaction with God himself. So the way we know things completely has to do with our head knowledge and our heart knowledge and the experiences that lead to both of those. All of it. Romans 10, 17, you guys know this verse. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The way we gain in our faith, grace and peace, is through the knowledge of God or through the study of God's word in part, but also the experience of the spirit, prayer, and the community of the saints. This is frankly why church is so important. Church isn't necessarily what gets done for you or the services that are a part of it. Church really is that active participation in a process that grows your grace and grows your peace. So you benefit from it in a spiritual sense, but you don't necessarily gain from it in the immediate sense. 
the benefits of knowing God's word, the fullness of God's word, knowing what God has said and what his intentions are, have some amazing things. Verse two, the benefit is grace and peace. Verse three, it's life and godliness. Verse four, it's to actually partake in the divine nature. Do you see how the, the pattern there? Verse two has in the knowledge of God. Verse three has through the knowledge of God. And by four, it says through these, which is a reference to the knowledge of God. Peter's showing us these are the ways to benefit. While he's sitting in a jail cell, joyfully heading towards the end of his days, getting ready to meet his maker. All of these are solid reasons to study God's word and the focus on it. Some of you pick on the fact that I, I centralize the study of God's word. Obviously, it's what I feel called to. But there are biblical passages like this one where the knowledge of God is the core to the faith of the believers. We become students of God as soon as we choose to serve him. If we want to serve someone, we should know their likes and their dislikes. If you want to minister to someone, you should actually know who they are and what's going to be a blessing. So if grace and peace for me are sufficient and that fills my heart, there's even more that gets added onto it. Verse 3, life and godliness, right? All of these things that pertain to life and godliness. The, the knowledge of God actually helps us to live a better life. It helps us to be more godly than we were yesterday. And that's abounding. So and all we, if we want to serve our master, we want to live a life that honors him. And that study of the word just fuels that divine power in our life. The same power that made the heavens and the earth is the power Peter's asking us to partake in. That same power that placed the stars in the sky, that raised the mountains, that separated the waters from the firmament, the same power that sustains the atoms in your body right now so they don't fly apart into the cosmos, that sustaining power is the power you have access to through the knowledge of God. If you know who God is, that same God that, pervert, that, that converted Paul is the same God that changes your heart. The same God that inspired Peter and gave him a new name is the one that gives you a new name. And Peter's just wishing that for the believers. And, and the heart of believers is that we want everyone to experience that. Yet we know in the church there are people that are not experiencing grace. There are people that don't feel the peace of God. There are people that are not living a life that's full and abundant. There are people that are struggling with godliness. But the heart of the mature believer is that we wish those things for everybody in the body. We want people to enjoy those benefits. God calls us to glory and virtue, and then he gives us divine power to make that happen. Yet many Christians never tap into it, and they live decades without tapping into the divine power that can bless their life. It says here, exceedingly great and precious promises. Peter's going to teach us that God is everything. And the promises of God are some of those important things that when we learn the knowledge of God, we actually learn the promises that he's made to us. And they can give us great assurance and peace. These are the verses Steph gathers to memorize. Like she wants to just memorize the promises of God so she can repeat them when she wants them. The preciousness, the idea that these are more important than anything this world has to offer. Knowing one promise of God for our eternal salvation is more important than anything that we experience in this world. Yet the world does everything it can do to prop itself up as more important than that promise. More essential, more urgent. God's promises are insured by his own name. The only thing that could possibly ensure a promise of God is God himself. His honor, his perfection, all tied up in those promises. 
He wouldn't be God if he didn't keep his promises. It's, it's contrary to his nature. Speaking of nature, verse 4, he's given us these promises that through those promises, we can be partakers of the divine nature. We can actually live in such a way that the Holy Spirit is something that we live and breathe alongside. And it just becomes part of who we are. We actually take part in a new spirit that's more divine than it is evil. This doesn't make us smiling, happy people. It does make us more people that are more at peace with their God, more at peace with each other, and at some level, content. So we have a promise of the Holy Spirit that abides in us, um, and that is, in part, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. As we walk away from what the world has to offer, we, we don't give up the world, we escape from it, right? The world's simply battering the people that live for it. So there's no loss for the believer. And I like how Peter, Peter frames that. He doesn't say having gave up or walked away from the corruption. It's having escaped from it, just tossing it off like it's nothing there. Okay, so that's just the intro to Second Peter, right? Welcome to the intro. Then he says, and this is de defining the partaking of the divine nature. The rest of this chapter is how to partake of God's nature and how to be participating with God in that. To partake is to consume or to take in. But also for this very reason, giving all di diligence, add to your faith virtue. So for this reason in verse 5 is what we just got done talking about. That knowing God and being a partaker of the divine nature, because of that possibility in your life, here's what you do. And, it, and, and again, this is one, like most of you know this verse, it's often quoted. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Sounds like a game plan for life. And so we'll break these down. Frankly, this is like a whole sermon series. Like people can go through each one of these and spend a Sunday on every one and then do a complete Bible study of what that looks like. Um, unpacking all of these, we're going to kind of go through them in about five, ten minutes. Um, so it won't be a whole sermon series. But let's start with add to. The idea of adding in there in the Greek, it's to lead up hand in hand, literally. So to add to is to be led down a path. And the path is partaking in the divine glory. But if we add to something, it's to furnish or to supply. Think of it like this. You can buy a new house, which you do with your salvation, but that house isn't furnished. It's not ready to do anything. In fact, if you buy a fixer-upper, it may not even be livable yet. And so when people come to the faith and they get the impurities cleared out of their life, what they might have left is something that's kind of ragged. And so you get a lot of believers that come and they're kind of a fixer-upper. But that's wonderful because there's nothing more glorious than a house that's been fixed up by God. And that he does that. And as you go through this list and you think of it that way, there is basically this idea that we're saved without anything that we do, but there's the possibility of being so much more after salvation. And so pursuing those things, and the word here is giving all diligence. We actually take our intentional time to commit to this activity. And Paul's encouraging all believers to do this. The day you get saved is the day you say, this is what's in front of you next. And as believers, that's how we encourage the new believers in our church. I think it's important when we think of add to and giving diligence 
that what happens often is that if believers are, say, working on perseverance in their life, and you meet a new believer and they're still working on their faith and getting those faith questions answered right off the bat, our tendency is to demand perseverance for somebody who's at a different stage of their development. And so what happens is you get godly people that are judgmental and intolerant of the people that are still working out their faith in fear and trembling. And so Peter presents a very different image that there's an understanding that there's a growth here that can take decades for people to grow through these stages. Um, clearly, like, godliness is not even the end of the process, right? To actually get to where you're living a fairly righteous life, that's not even the end of the growth cycle. So it's one of those things that we approach with some humility, but we give it diligence in our own life, not necessarily being judgmental or legalistic on other people's lives. But we pursue these things. First one is faith. You know, just that idea of having an assurance that God will sustain you, inviting the Lord to live in your heart is to say, I need someone to help me fix up this house. It's a mess. You got virtue, moral goodness, thought, feelings, actions of purity, living as God guides or determining to yourself that virtue is better than corruption. And this is tough for new believers. You may have faith in God, but not choose to live for God. And that step is very different. And so to have faith in God intellectually is not the same thing as cleaning out the house. I can buy the house, but it still has cockroaches in it. And at some point, you got to get rid of the cockroaches or God will help you do that. And he'll get that house so it's cleaned up. There's a virtue there to where you think, okay, this is a house that's clean enough for, to do some work and to actually do it. Then you get knowledge as the third one. The word there is gnosis. It's an understanding or a grasp of or a handle on what's to be done in your life. And again, I, I know a lot of believers that have been believers for 10, 15 years, but they've never really developed any knowledge of God. And this is how Peter started off the letter. Knowledge of God is the path towards peace and contentment and grace. But it's about learning. So if I buy a house and I get the crud cleaned out, maybe I should go watch some YouTube clips on how to fix the place up and what to do with it. And I know I'm carrying this metaphor way too far, but it just works for me. Like just buying the house doesn't get it ready to host people, right? So if I want to make more rooms in my heart for other people in my life, there's some work that has to get done. So I do some learning. Gnosis, the knowledge of God is experiential in, in addition to being cognitive. So I learn about it by reading the word, but when I test God's word, I get a knowledge of it that's intrinsic. This actually works, and if I live this way, it functions. When I get faith, virtue, knowledge, the next one, the fourth run, is self-control. What's interesting in the, the faith to me is oftentimes Christians demand self-control of people before faith, virtue, and knowledge. And Peter, using that add-to language, is putting these in an order. And he's doing this after being taught by Jesus for three years and walking hand-in-hand -hand with Jesus in the ministry for decades. And he's seeing this from experience. He's telling us this is how it works. Self-control comes with knowledge. And so you add self-control, which is a temperateness. To self-control, the Greek word there is to master the extremes. To not be too cold, not to be too hot. This is not to be a lukewarm Christian. This is to be a self-controlled Christian. Very different word. To have appetites with purpose. So to be in self-control doesn't mean you deny yourself all appetites. It does mean that those appetites have a limit to them 
and they have a purpose to them. So you have work or you have a game plan. Again, if you're fixing up your house, have a game plan. What's next on your list? And to have that idea of a knowledge of God going to faith, virtue, self-control, and to, to, to build knowledge into that, to serve God is what he's called us to do. We're not ruled by our lusts anymore. We don't just jump here and there because there's nothing better to do. So we're set apart and we have self-control in that. Self-control is really difficult. It can take people decades to work that out. But it is one of those things. There's a strong connection here or a connotation that a believer chooses their times, they choose their resources, they choose their relationships, and they don't make those decisions based on what the world says. They make those decisions based on what God says. So there is a process here, a developing process, that we live our life having control of it ourselves. Honestly, some people say, I'm a, I'm a bond servant to Jesus Christ, but I have freedom in Christ. That seems like an oxymoron, or at least a paradox. So how can I have total freedom, self-control, when I'm a complete slave to my Lord and King? And it's because our Lord doesn't demand slaves. He demands sons and daughters. So we choose to be who we want to be, and self-control is part of that. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control... Let's say I've generally got my life in order, right? I got my time, my resources, um, my choices are, have been made intentionally. They're not just accidental. The next one that comes along is perseverance. Now endure in that. Stick it out. Perseverance is both patience and the ability to endure tied together. To be constant, reliable, steadfast. Well, another phrase is to wait upon the Lord. God's called me to faith, virtue, knowledge, and self-control. I'm just going to do those things. And if I have to do those things for 15 years, I'm ready to be used by my Lord. I will persevere until the end. And I've resolved to do that in part because I have faith that it's going to work out because I've seen God do it. I'm going to preserve to the end because I see the value of a virtuous thought and to be thinking of those things. I'm going to persevere to the end because the knowledge of God actually builds peace and grace in my life. I'm going to persevere to the end because I like self-control. I don't like being out of control. It hurts me and it hurts the people around me. So I'm going to live in such a way that that's there. And here's the thing with perseverance. Any active ministry to serve the church requires a degree of perseverance that you stick it out. Imagine if like I gave you all a text on a Sunday morning and just said, ah, I didn't get to it this week. Sorry, no Bible study. You're not ready for ministry. So perseverance has to do with being reliable so that other people can rely on what you're doing or to serve the church. And when somebody's missing and they've got an active role to help out with things, we all miss them. And there's a gap in the church or that idea that there's a missing element to it. Ministry requires perseverance so that the house of the Lord is actually one that people can be relying on. Let's say you got somebody who hasn't even been saved yet. They don't even have a house yet. But they know that when they come to your house, they can trust that the, the toilets will work, the sink will happen, there's a meal. When we say there's a meal, there's a meal. When people encounter a reliable human being, that's truly unique in the world that we have today. That they're just there and they're solid. And quite frankly, I, I would condition this, and maybe that's because I'm working on this myself. We're not perfect in that. But there's an understanding that we're there all the time and reliably doing it. 
and we just persevere in it, even when it's not fun anymore, because the self-control has built up this idea that I've chosen to act in such a way, now I can persevere in it, and it gets added to self-control. What gets added to perseverance? Godliness. God wants people that are under control. He wants people that live an orderly life. He wants people that are reliable and that persevere. He wants people that can endure. So he strengthens people to do those things. Contentment with great gain, 1 Timothy 6.6. 6, that's godliness. You're content and you've added these things to it. There's gain to it. Godliness, the end goal or the point for us between salvation and our fleshly death is a pursuit of godliness. And we go after it. We have faith. We know it's going to work. We have virtue. We start trying to work on it in our head. We have knowledge of it. We've studied the word and we've been persevering in our study of the gospels. We have self-control. We actually start to control our own lives a little more. And then we persevere in it over time. And then the next thing you know, people go, wow, that's a godly person. Because their reputation is such that people can come to expect a certain kind of behavior from that person. Sadly, my kids know that I have uh, impatience when I'm working. And so they know me as an impatient guy. If dad's working, he's fairly snappy. What a tragedy. So in my life, one of the things I want to do is go back to, reverse to, the study of God's word. What does God say a godly man should look like? I want to gain self-control and actually get a handle on that. So I'm not as snippy when I'm working. So I do take breaks and have patience with the people around me. Then I want to persevere in it so that the reputation of dad is impatient when he works goes away. And then you say, you know what? For five, six, seven, ten years now, dad's never been impatient with me while he's been working. And so there's this idea where Peter talks about this. He's talking about a house that's ready for ministry and your perseverance leads to a character trait called godliness. They look a lot like Jesus. They act a lot like Jesus. And it's been built up over time. Frankly, this idea of godliness starts to draw other people into your life because they see somebody who acts and looks a lot like Jesus. There's no hypocrisy there. And so they're drawn to that kind of person. And this is, I think, sometimes where we don't understand how this works. Why am I not drawing people into the kingdom? And one wonders if you're making a demand of yourself on godliness that just isn't there yet. And you need to go back to building on your faith, working on your virtue, knowledge of the word, self-control, and persevering over time. And watch how God will turn that into ministry. He'll turn that into the things where you're actually drawing people into the kingdom. Look at what the next one is. What do you add to godliness? What could you possibly add to godliness? Brotherly kindness. Just an ability to be a friend. Right? And, and to be a friend that's a brotherly kindness, the Greek word there is Philadelphia. Um, Peter knows this word because when Jesus said, do you love me? He said agape. Different love word in the Greek. And Peter goes, yeah, I love you, Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm your friend. I'm your buddy. Philadelphia. And Jesus goes, do you love me? Do you agape love me? Yeah, of course I Philadelphia love you. Third time Jesus asks him, do you love me? Agape? And Peter finally says, I agape love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. The feeding of the sheep, the brotherly kindness, is a basic courtesy or hospitality or welcome. You can help with hospitality by picking up chairs, by making food. You can do the things of brotherly kindness 
without necessarily having the feeling there yet. So people can come over to your house. Think of this as furnishing the house with godliness. And then suddenly people actually like hanging out at your house. It's, the cockroaches are gone and it's a nice place to be. I know when I go there, there'll be food, there'll be some games to play, there'll be people that love me. There's a basic level of kindness. And when you're basically ready to be kind to other people, there's a strange thing that happens. As we seek Philadelphia, brotherly kindness with people, at some point you add agape to that. At some point there's people that just make you laugh. Even in their faults and failings, you're like, I just like this person. And I think that this is an interesting thing when we look at what Peter's wishing for every person in the church is to go through this growth cycle. And if there's anything beyond agape love, Peter hasn't found it yet at the end of his time. There's nothing beyond what Jesus initially asked of him, unconditional agape love. Philadelphia is that buddy kind of friend thing. But boy, if you trash my house, like, I don't know if I need you here. But agape love is different. Agape is a familial love, family love. It's why we call ourselves brothers and sisters. In tough situations, family love never goes away. Family love is sacrificial. Family love doesn't care what you've done, what you've said, or who you've hurt. There's still a love there. Agape love is, is in addition to being the hugs and kisses of a mother, it is the discipline and instruction of a father. Agape love goes both ways. It's tough love. It's soft love. It is a love that cannot be broken because we're family, right? Like Italians, we're family, right? It goes on like that forever, that we're brothers, we're sisters until we're dead. And so even if someone's estranged and they leave and they go away with agape love, it breaks your heart, right? And the heart continues to be broke until there's reconciliation. That's what Peter wants for everybody in the church. Is that in the you come to church every Sunday and you just have a kindness for the people here. You tolerate the people here. But over time, when you do that regularly, you start to adore the people that you've been kind and tolerating. And you start to fall in love. And you realize that's just a love that goes very deep. The hard part about agape love is that you got fleshly humans that will break your trust all the time. Peter says this is still the way to God's grace and contentment. We don't naturally go from faith to agape. It's a growth process. And Peter's arguing that there is a step-by-step growth thing that helps you get to the agape love. And Peter spent a lifetime figuring this out. And he's carefully worded it for us. Agape love allows other people allows us to put other people before ourselves. At the end of the day, we're selfless. So, and you're like, but we're supposed to get self-control. That's very self-focused. Yep, midway through the growth cycle. And when self-control has been attained, you're still growing and you're still growing. But the ultimate end of that growth is agape, where you don't think about yourself anymore. You just think about caring for the family, bringing them as close to a relationship as you can. There's a kindness there. So the Christian benefits of the knowledge of God, through the knowledge of God, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. What does the world have to offer that compares with any of those things? And if these things are true and they're real in your life, you pr- they're precious, just like Peter called them. These are precious things that we have. So these are things we go over. If those things don't interest you, the Christian faith probably doesn't interest you very much. Why would you even want to be in heaven? 
Like these are the things that we adore because we see the inherent value in all of these things. Verse 8 says, For if these things are yours and abound, you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Well, Peter, he says it like it is. There's no time limit to these things. But if you don't feel maturity in any of these areas, find it. Diligently work for it. Pursue it. These things are yours. For if all these things are yours and abound, all believers have access to these things. All, these aren't spiritual gifts that some people get and some people don't. All believers have access to these things. All believers can work at these things over the course of a lifetime. And to play the long game is what you're doing here. And that's Peter's thing. Like, literally, if we have these things and we abound in these things, that is the fruit of our life, to be abounding in all of these things. Not rare, not limited, not filled to the top, but overflowing to where it affects other people's lives. If we buy a house that's a piece of garbage and, we f and the Lord helps us fix that up and then he helps us furnish it, then he helps us fill it with hospitality, suddenly you've got a house that's doing ministry and you didn't really do it. God helped you get there at each step of the time. Your job is to diligently seek it, to actually look for it. I see too many Christians that understand it in their head, but it hasn't moved 12 inches to their heart. And they don't have that abundant life. What they're constantly focused on is what's wrong, what's broken, what needs fixing. Instead of those things that God's doing and the joys of seeing God do those things in our lives. It's short-sighted even to blindness. Spiritual lacking or not desiring these things is actually a form of spiritual blindness. You just aren't seeing what God has for you in your life. You're missing it. So Peter puts it right out there in nine verses. It undermines our walk to be blind. The whole point is we're going to stumble if we're not seeing clearly what's in front of us. And that's the problem for people. We've forgotten when we escape from sin, we get caught in this limbo. And Peter's arguing that to not be pursuing is to be backsliding. You are falling back. You've forgotten. So Peter's point, pursue the Christian life. Go after it. Don't think you've arrived until the day you're hanging on the cross, like Peter's going to be. You're not there yet. So even if you're like, but I have agape love for my wife or for my kid. Well, can you develop agape love for your enemy? What does that look like? How does that happen? And I would say it doesn't happen naturally in the flesh. It's a supernatural thing that happens in your heart to love your enemy. Verse 10, therefore, brethren. Again, he's talking to the believers this isn't a question of salvation or not salvation. This is a question of an abundant Christian life versus a destitute Christian life. And what he's asking people to do is to live a life in such a way that where he can, people can flourish. Verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election, sir. Again, that same word, diligent. Like, go after this, you guys. To make your call and election, sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you at abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Initial reading of that, is he talking about my salvation? Making my call and election sure? The idea that verse 5 bookends diligent is clearly indicating that Peter is talking to believers that are pursuing something in their life. 
Um, the words call an election. A call is an invitation. <laughs> so we're embracing a call that God's put on upon our life. God doesn't call non-believers to anything but salvation. But once we're saved, we're often called to do other things in the kingdom. God's put things on our hearts. So I would argue the word call there is being used in a context of people that are, are, have sealed their salvation, but there's a calling on their life to do something for God. We can be saved while we're still waiting on a calling. You're not obligated to conjure up or to fabricate a calling in your life. This often happens in churches where that's one of those things. What's God's calling on your life? And if you don't have one, you feel like you're less than? Nope, I'm just working on perseverance. I'm waiting for God to call me into something. But that election, calling being a ministry that God's maybe put on your heart, an election is the act of picking out, selecting, or choosing. Are we God's choice or is he ours? So that idea of being diligent to make my call and election sure isn't working for salvation, but it is working to find my calling in the kingdom. And sometimes that means trying a little bit of everything when it comes to ministry, moving around till you get one where you're like, I just love doing this. And then that, it's not a burden on you. The burden's pretty light. It's like, I just like doing this anyways. You don't have to fight with Grant to get him to play guitar usually, right? He just likes doing it and it's a joy for him. So that elect, uh, the, uh, the calling and election is to be called to certain things, but then there's an element where we need to choose to do those things. So God, you can know in the back of your head, God's given me gifts, talents, and passions for this one thing, but I don't know if I want to commit to it for the church yet. But if you want to make your calling and election sure, God gives the calling, we elect to do it. And that's the use of that word elect there. So you want to be active in the kingdom. And this is, again, Peter's desire for everybody because at the other end of that is a huge blessing for the Christian life. Huge blessing. Make it sure. Greek there is babeos. Stable, firm, fast, something you can trust in, something you can diligently pursue and then see the results of it. And that's a witness you can share with other people. You become more and more sure of what God's doing in your life. A surety there. These things, what are the, these things he's talking about? Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love, agape. Those are the things he's talking about. If you do these things, if you pursue that path he just laid out, then look at it, you will never stumble. Holy cow, if this is Holy Spirit inspired, that's quite a promise. Never stumble? And part of it is if you are blinded to the fact that those things are important, you will stumble if you pursue those things. You are going the right direction and it's awfully hard for you to sin while you're doing what God's called you to do. Stay about the business of God and you don't get in trouble. Been really inspired to see one of our brothers digging up the backyard to make a garden. One of the things he said to my wife was like, if I'm digging up a garden, I know I'm not sinning. Brilliant. That's diligently pursuing self-control. And he's going after it. And he knows himself, and he knows if he just sits around all night, he's just going to get into stuff he shouldn't get into. So he gets a hoe and a shovel, and he starts tearing up these two-inch diameter roots out of our backyard. And I think, wow, that looks miserable. But he's thinking, wow, I'm finally getting free from sin. I realize I can make choices, and there's a blessing in doing that. You'll never stumble. Verse 11, for so an entrance will be supplied. 
the supply of the entrance is there's this door into heaven. There's this pathway to the kingdom. And Jesus promises anyone who believes in him will have eternal life, right? And that there's this entrance that's there. An entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. That will be a very large, huge thing. In fact, the word here, the entrance, is kind of an interesting word. In the, in the Roman tradition, when a returning general came back from battle, they made an entry. It was a thing. It was a party. There's this grand entrance that would happen. And so there were different kinds of entrances. You could arrive to the city and, and make an entrance as a general, as a conqueror, as Jesus did when he walked up and rode on a donkey and they sang praises and they held out the palm branches. That's making an entrance. But you can also make a very quiet entrance. So with the word entrance, you need to have some sort of supplemental word to describe what it is. The one Peter chooses is abundantly. You're going to have an abundant entrance into heaven. There will be fanfare and celebration when this person arrives. And I, I think that's not hard to imagine because I think if I'm sitting in heaven and I'm waiting for people to come in the door, there are certain people I'm going to get excited when they walk in the door because they've blessed my life. Think about this. If I'm in heaven and there's an announcement that comes over the PA system, in five minutes... Chuck Smith is going to be making his entrance in heaven. I know he died before me, but just imagine this. And you're going, oh, and you're going to drop everything you're doing because you're like, I want to be at the gates when this happens. I want to be there and be shouting joy because that guy walked in the door and through his obedience, his doing of those eight things, he blessed my life in a powerful way. You know, I just think of how much, to what degree, like, we go through the prophets and you're like, wow, I really appreciate King David. I really appreciate Amos and Hosea. We go through the Old Testament, we see these stories and these people, and when they make an entrance, it's exciting. If, you're, if your favorite podcaster knocked on the door of your house, you'd be going, wow, what did I, what did I do to deserve this? And I think when we deal with brothers and sisters in the faith, there's a natural regard for those that are mature and have given up themselves for agape love of other people. And they just freely love people. And you're just like, man, I love these people. So they come in like a returning champion. I want to read that again. They will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That entry is part of an eternal kingdom. They get those crowns forever. They get that honor from the other people in the faith for eternity. It will never fade away that we regard and respect those that were martyred for their faith. Martyrs get a special crown. Hospitality gets a crown. Those that accept Jesus get a little baby crown. You know, they, they made the right choice. Good for them. But there is a crown, there are a set of crowns that are out there, and they see this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. At nighttime, shepherds would, pens didn't have gates on them. Hinges were iron and they were expensive, and sheep are not a money crop. So the shepherd themselves would sleep in the gate of the sheep pen, the sheepfold, to block the sheep from getting out and block the wolves to get in. And so you'd see this, and Jesus says, I'm the door, I'm the way. I'm the one you have to get past to get there. So John 10, 9, I'm the door. By me, if any man enter, he shall be saved. He shall go in and out and find pasture. 
for an everlasting kingdom, we are short-sighted if we're not playing that game. And if we're just playing this game, how do I get enough money to retire? How do I get enough people to like me that I'm happy? How do I get enough of my toys so that I can play when I feel like it? If we don't grow up past those goals and pursuits, we're not thinking, we're not long-sighted. We're not thinking of the everlasting kingdom. Peter reminds them of heaven, that's the goal, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A Lord directs your life, a Savior saves your life. Two very different roles. If Jesus is your Savior, he should be your Lord. If he's your Lord, he will be your Savior. It goes both ways. So Peter then is approaching death. And I think he's pointing this out like, I'm about to die. I got nothing to gain by telling you the truth, right? Nothing to lose here when I tell you these things. If you don't like what you're hearing, tough. Verse 12, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know you're established in the present truth. I know you guys know this stuff. But Peter's point is, I'm, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't remind you of these things. This is the basics of the Christian walk. Thank you, First Peter, for, or Second Peter. Entry into heaven is the reason we do everything. Chapter 1, verse 11. It's where we're going, and it's good to remember where we're going and then pursue it. If I have a, an event coming up, let's say I'm in a, um, a bicycle race, I would do well to make sure my bicycle's operating, oiled, that the chain is tight, that the wheels are inflated properly. I would do well to do that. I can enter the race without doing that. I'm just not doing it very well. There's not a, I won't have an abundant race when I do it. So you can get into heaven with simple belief in Jesus Christ, but if there's no change in your life, one wonders if that belief is actually deep, if it goes anywhere, if it's changing you. Though you know and are established. You know, Peter's saying this like, I, I think kind of like an old man, I know you've heard me say this before, but I don't see that you're doing it. So I'm going to repeat it. And then 13, he, he agrees with himself. Yes, I think it's right. Right? I think it's right to remind you, as long as I'm in this tent, this body that I have, as long as I'm here in the flesh, to stir you up by reminding you. It's good to be reminded of these things. Knowing that shortly I must pull off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Jesus went to the cross. Peter knows he's headed to the cross too. His only request, due to church tradition, he just requested that he would be hung upside down on the cross because he didn't want to pretend that he was anything like Jesus. And they granted him that request. They hung him upside down on the cross, church tradition says. Verse 14, knowing that I shortly must pull off my tent. He's, he's using a, a language there for the flesh. These bodies, they're temporary. They're not there. I like to think when I get to heaven, I'll be, I'll be in great shape again. Um, these, but we put it off. Like it's not that he's saying I'm going to die. He's saying I'm just putting off my fleshly body. Peter knows that he's seen Jesus transfigured. He knows there's a life after death. He knows there's a transfigured body. So he's going to put off this flesh one. He's going to put on his new one, as our Lord Jesus Christ did. Again, he's referencing the fact that he saw this firsthand. Always have a reminder. And so, Peter's writing this letter so that they can keep the letter and have a reminder of these basics of the Christian faith. The Christian church has kept this letter until we're reading it here on a Sunday morning. 
So when Peter wrote this, I think he did it as an intentional reminder that after he was dead and gone, believers could pick this letter up, read it, and know the path. This is why we have it in our Bible. It's why we have a lot of these letters in our Bible. These are reminders from people that lived it, did it, and changed the world in doing it. I want my life to have impact. I want people to come into the kingdom. Then do what the people who have done that say to do, right? I want to install windows. Well, then listen to people that know how to install windows and learn how to do it properly. And Peter's here. He knows how to install windows. He knows how to live this life. He's done it. So do what he says. And that's wisdom is to do that. The strength of the gospel is in part its immediacy. It's that we've experienced it. And the idea of sharing the gospel is to bear witness, meaning you're telling people things you've seen, that you've experienced. But if you're not doing those eight things that he went through and you're not diligently pursuing those things, you probably don't have a lot of stories to tell. So you come to a church body where we're telling those stories every week, I hope. And then you share, hey, I got a buddy in my church that just did this and that happened and this happened. And you can still bear witness to what you see because you're actually part of a body of people that are sharing those stories. Our faith and our gospel is rooted in actual events as Jesus Christ showed me, verse 14. Everywhere we see God moving, it's rooted in a real event and in real history. Severely lacking in Zoroastrianism and in Buddhism. Uh, virtually absent in, in other religions that were written in a secret room with golden tablets and a magical pen, right? When God acts, like the plagues of Egypt were seen by nations. The burning of, the, of Sinai was seen by all of the Jewish people. The Red Sea parting was seen by two groups of people, one of which are no longer around to, to tell about it, right? God does things publicly. Jericho fell in front of not only the Jews, but the Jerichoans, right? And when God acts and he moves in history, he does it publicly, all publicly. So we have confirmation of Jesus, and we don't have to doubt that confirmation. We have the witnesses, verse 16 and 18. We have God himself coming up in verse 17. We have God's prophetic word in verse 19. And we have the Holy Spirit active in our life, verse 21. We have a surety that we can move forward, which is why we do those eight things he just talked about. Verse 16, let's go through those. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received the, the, from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. It was not private. He says, we heard. In other words, Peter's not just saying, I, I, I had a voice from God and I saw this. He's saying, we saw, we were all there. We all saw this voice. Everybody at the baptism of Jesus heard a voice from heaven and a light come down like a, and land on Jesus like a dove. It was a very public event that was known. Peter died in the knowledge of these things. Verses 16 through 18, all of the disciples, except for Judas and, and John, who got to take care of Mary, died martyrdom because they held to the belief that Jesus was God. And they didn't, you don't hold to a belief. When somebody's torturing you unto death, you don't just hold on to lies, right? But if you know something to be true and somebody's telling you to deny it, 
you do hold on to that all the way through death. Because it would be more fearful to deny God than it would be to upset that human being that's torturing you. So you hold it. And so you see this rooting of this thing. They weren't devised fables. Christianity, Judaism are not a series of, of myths and fables. That's Peter's claim. Yet we have millions of Christians today that are compromising on Old Testament stories saying, well, that's just a myth, that's just a fable. Not according to Peter, not according to Jesus. Those were things that were rooted. So people tend to let go of things if they're a lie and they hold on to them if they're the truth. And yet we see Jesus and Peter holding on to the Old Testament scriptures. They're not fables. They're not myths. They're not make-believe. Jesus didn't put on a grand theatrical affair and pretend to die. He did die. And then he did rise. And he was seen by hundreds after he rose from the dead. This is Peter's claim. They were eyewitnesses is the word he uses. That's a legal term. We still use it as a legal term. They actually saw what they're claiming to have seen. And it's plural. It's not just Peter making that argument. Evidence. Eyewitnesses alone are to be questioned. They could be nutty. But two or more witnesses are enough to convict somebody in a Jewish court. We have four Gospels, 11 disciples, plus hundreds of converts like Paul that all went to their death believing something to be true. That's a lot more than two witnesses. And so when we see this early acceptance of the faith, we have people that have partaken of the divine and they are witnesses of it in their life. Matthew said of Jesus' glory, uh, Matthew 17, 2, and he was transfigured before them, plural, and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was as white as the light. Not only did they hear the voice at the baptism, they heard a voice at the transfiguration on the other side of his life. This was promised of old. The voice was, this is my beloved son. At the baptism, God finished that by saying, in whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration, he finished that by yelling at Peter. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And at this point, Peter doesn't remember that as a rebuke. He remembers it as a precious confirmation. He's grown. It's interesting how this works. In verse 19, it's going to say, we have the prophetic word confirmed. What's he talking about with that? He's talking about the fact that the Old Testament is loaded, absolutely pack-loaded with references to Jesus Christ that came true. After Jesus was risen from the dead, they went through the scriptures together. It had to be the best Bible studies in human history, where they went back to those prophecies and God showed them that. Things like Genesis 22.8. With Abraham, you don't have to give your son because God will provide himself the lamb is the literal Hebrew translation. Like from the beginning, 1 Chronicles 17, 13, I will be his father and he will be my son and I will not take mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. Who did he take mercy away from? He's offered mercy to everybody. The only person that was not offered mercy was Jesus Christ, who took on the sins of the world and then paid the punishment for it. That's the only one. We were with him. Peter's talking about being with him in his ministry, with him on the, on the mountain, with him when that voice was heard. It's a memory for Peter. It's not just a recording in the Bible. It's not someone else's evidence. He saw it. He heard it. He was together. He was with him. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's an event. Be sure of this. And again, why is Peter arguing for them to be so sure of it? Why is he giving reasons to be sure of Jesus Christ? 
because he wants all the believers to live a life of abundance and joy. I'm struggling all the time. Okay, well then remember these things. Remember your life is not your, about your moment that you're in. Your life is the long game. You're heading towards a kingdom. Be nice if you could look back and say, my name is Simon Peter. My name is the idiot plus the rock, right? That's me. I'm the guy that used to be this, but over time now I'm this. And that's how Simon, Simon Peter introduces himself. Verse 19, we so have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. And that until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, until you feel that joy, remember this. Remember that you have a prophetic word. And again, he introduces this chapter by saying these things come through the knowledge of God. Part of the knowledge of God is to study the prophets. So the prophetic word, what is that? Obviously, you got the prophets in the Old Testament. There are also prophetic words or words of knowledge that they've been seeing. If you read Mark, Acts, Peter saw many of these things happening in the early church. The Spirit was moving through people. Notice that when Peter's giving these arguments, he doesn't mention any of the miracles of Jesus. And I think that's interesting because miracles don't change people's hearts, but the prophetic word does. When you see that God knows the future and you see evidence of that, um, that predictive, confirmed process is extremely remarkable. There are lots of religions that claim miracles. Heck, there are people today that claim that they can do miracles. They put hands on foreheads and knock people over. But miracles can be doubted. But when you see written, confirmed religious texts that then came true, that's something that can't easily, as easily be doubted or skeptical about. With the life of Jesus Christ, over 330 prophecies were fulfilled. Just the life of Jesus. We have a notable number of predictions and prophecies about his second coming too. And if his first coming was so accurate, you have a statistical improbability of his first coming. There is no human being on earth that statistically meets the requirements of those 330 prophecies. Just let's narrow it down to a one and... 1 in 10 to the 21st power statistical thing. Just do these six. Had to come from the tribe of Judah. Had to be in the line of David. That narrows down all of humanity pretty quick. Had to be of a virgin mother. Now, now we're done to a statistical improbability or impossibility. Had to be a, a person that came out of Egypt but was from the town of Nazareth and born in the town of Bethlehem all prophesied in the Old Testament. So just take those six. Pretty much you're down to nobody. Nobody fits that description, but Jesus did. Making Jesus as a human being a statistical impossibility. Amazing. You would do well to heed is the verse that's here. You know what? If you're struggling in your faith, you do well to kind of go back and study those 330 prophetic words and how they got fulfilled. What's going to happen in your heart is that the knowledge of God will grow. And you'll be on that path if you diligently seek it and say, how many of those prophecies can I name off the top of my head? And you do well to be able to name even the six I just gave you. And to see those and see where they're said, see that they were said hundreds of years before Jesus ever happened. God doesn't work in our lifetime. He works in millennia. And to know that God will continue to do it. A light that shines in a dark place. This is not just the vial that Frodo had in Shelob's lair. This is the light that we have when we feel down. 
when the world around us is a mess, when it's a disaster, when people let us down, we know that there's a God who doesn't let us down. I think the hardest thing for kids is when they grow up and they realize their parents aren't perfect. And that world in which their perfect parents gets shattered, it's a disastrous moment for most kids. Like my dad is not only not perfect, and in fact, I think I know how to do some things better than he does. In fact, I think he makes bad decisions all the time. In fact, I can drive better than that guy. Like that's a tough thing for kids to realize. But what you would do well to do is that there is a light that shines in a dark place. There is something, someone greater than your parents. And despite where your parents left you, this is the home that you have is eternally with your father in heaven. The one who did this perfectly. Until the day dawns, he's talking about Jesus' second coming. The early disciples were convinced that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but that he was coming back for them. And so they taught that. They preached it. They, the principle of eminent return. They believed he could come at any day and at any time. Believers have believed that for 2,000 years. Well, maybe you're just believing in a myth. Or maybe not. Maybe God's just taken 2,000 years to come back. Because he wants everyone to come into salvation. And he's a patient God. Before he destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, he waited 200 years for them to repent and turn before he got rid of them. That's a patient God. Verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy isn't coded and it's not in secret. This is one of the greatest discoveries in my Christian walk, is when I started reading the prophets and realized I could understand them fully. Like, they make sense. They're not in a code language. You don't need to be... Um, you don't need to have a code wheel to decide what they mean. You don't need to be Chuck Missler. You can just read them and they plainly say he will be a branch of, 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 of the, uh, the Savior will be a branch of Judah. The Savior will come from a virgin. You can read Isaiah 53 and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that that's Jesus on the cross. Honestly, the prophecies are not in this odd code. We've just been doing Amos and Hosea. We haven't hit anything that's that hard to understand. A basic reading, a basic understanding, maybe one or two commentaries. None of this is hard. The problem is most people don't take the time to read it. And God's saying, wow, I gave you a new house. You don't even take the time to learn about decorating. And this is the stuff I want to fill your house with. I want you to live abundantly. And yet people don't even go for it. Verse 20, knowing this first, like understand the knowledge of God is the path to all of these things. Study the word. Well, it's going to take me five, six years to get through the word. Uh-huh. That's, gonna, that's why you got a 70-year life, is now you still have 90% of your life to go do ministry. Learn the Word. That's, wait, if you live to be 60, then it's 90% of your life. I, math. Old Testament prophets delivered their Word from the Lord. It came from the Holy Spirit. The reason Peter's saying this is because those prophets staked their life on it. They gave a public declaration, often to kings that wanted to kill them. And then they wrote it down so they would give the public declaration and then they would write it and they'd put it in the public records and they would store it in the temple. It was every prophecy of the Old Testament was publicly delivered, written down, and then anyone could go to the temple and read it. And the rabbis on any given Sabbath could be reading from the prophets and actually reading them aloud publicly. The whole point was that the prophecies were public. In Jesus' day, all of the experts got it wrong. That's why it's so important for Peter to say, you need to go read the prophets. Don't listen to Dickers. Read it for yourself. Understand it for yourself. 
know it in, in your head, you're confident in those things because the enemies of God and people will twist the prophecies to mean whatever they want them to mean. Stephen Furtick even said, I'll make the Bible say whatever I want it to say. End quote. It changes the meaning of things to suit their sin. And this is what the Pharisees did. They looked at the prophecies of the Messiah and they interpreted them in such a way that it made them more important than they were. And we're still doing that today. Prophecies never came by the will of man. It was never a human thing in the first place. So it makes a lot of sense that it takes a divine understanding and a Holy Spirit to help you understand the Holy Spirit. A lot of times Old Testament prophets would give the prophetic word not understanding what they were saying. <laughs> this is another evidence of the Holy Spirit. So if I'm giving a prophetic word about Assyria coming and then I have this thing to say about a Messiah afterwards, oftentimes the prophets were recording it because God said it, not because their will came up with it. There was no benefit to, to Zechariah, Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah. There's no benefit to them to say that that God's judgment was coming. There, was no, there wasn't the will of human beings to make that happen. Elijah stood by himself in the face of hundreds of prophets of Baal, not because he wanted to be there, not because it was his will, but because God told him to be there and his will was to serve the king. He was a messenger. He was a bondservant. So they're moved by the Holy Spirit. It's God-inspired, not human-inspired. This is why you study the prophecies, because it's God-inspired content. Of every, you can go into libraries, massive libraries with books floor to ceiling, wall to wall, 12 layer, layer levels of basements and 12 stories high and have all the words of man all around you everywhere. But none of that is moved by the Holy Spirit. None of it will provide the same fruit that the study of the scriptures provides, period. The Holy Spirit is the one that has been a, a consistent voice through all of the prophets that have given perfect prophecy about the judgment of Israel and about the coming and the resurrection of Messiah. And there's a third element to the prophecies, which is the second coming of Messiah. Why would we doubt any of those when they've been confirmed in the first two instances? So we read them. We've talked before as we went through Amos and Hosea that there is with all prophecy an immediate fulfillment, which means it gets locked into preservation at the temple. There is a messianic application, which we get to look at and see how accurate those things mirrored what happened. And then there's a revelation of God, or we learn more about God's character when we read the prophecies. So we use them and we apply them to our lives, knowing the character of God. And then fourth, there's a second coming application. This is what's going to happen next. And so oftentimes people study the prophecies um, because they're fixated on the news. And they want to just match between news and prophecy all the time. But I don't know if that's what Peter's saying here. We don't study the prophecy because they're showing us what's happening in the news. We're studying the prophecy because they were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak those things. So we keep them. Biblical texts have been scrutinized, challenged, studied, parsed, um, re-evaluated re on original texts for over 4,000 years. Yet the Bible still sits there doing just fine. Why? Because it was inspired by God. And that's, I think for some people to just, you, you do well to remember this is not just a book, it's God's book. And he put it together. It's not ours. We didn't create it. We didn't make it. And no one author can claim the credit. No will of man can claim the credit for inventing Judaism or Christianity. 
There's a collective voice between all these authors. And there's a prophecy is a large reason why we say that about the Bible. And so Peter's elevating the importance of prophecy and he's arguing that all the blessings and gifts of a godly life are to be had by people through the knowledge of God and through the study of God's word. That makes God's word pretty important in the life of a Christian. And it's a big deal. It's why we dedicate time every week to study it together. Verse 8 says, For these things are yours and abound. Not only will that study take a good part of your life, but there's, these are all things for you to have. They're all gifts. Imagine getting up on Christmas morning and never going to the room with the tree in it and never even seeing the gifts that are there, much less opening them and enjoying them. God's put the prophecies in there not to terrorize us, but to give us gifts that make our life better. These are wonderful things. So we start by knowing them. So you got a confirmation of Jesus here. Verses 1 through 3 talk about the knowledge of God, the Word. You're supposed to learn it. And you got verses 16 and 18 saying, read the Gospels. These are witnesses of what happened. You got God himself, verse 17, go read the Torah. This is what God said. Then you got prophetic word in verse 19, go read the prophets. And you got the Holy Spirit mentioned in verse 21. Go read Acts in the history of the church. Read about the missionaries that have gone for 2,000 years. See what the Holy Spirit's been doing in the church for that time. All of these things are worthy of the knowledge gaining that we have to do in our life. So Christians that struggle, 100% of the time in my experience, Christians that struggle have a sparse to non-existing study of the Word going on in their life. They're not digging in. And they're maybe coming to church on Sunday and, and enduring it for an hour, but they're not seeing that there's an abundant blessing here every day for them and getting up in the Word and just enjoying it. Know the Word. Keep the Word. Love the fellowship of the saints. God talks about the feasts. Pray and be disciplined to keep your prayer. Keep a communication line up with God. And I, there's a song by Ren Collective we've been geeking on called Hallelujah Anyway. Celebrate regardless of your feelings. Choose celebration and choose to keep joy in your life. The word, the feast, communication, and praise. Those pieces are what bring an abundant life. And yet, those are the things Satan attacks. Those are the things we don't have time for. Those are the things we feel awkward if we even take a shot at them. Because the funniest thing in the world is somebody who's not used to doing worship, and then for the first time they try to do it wholeheartedly, and they're awkward and they're lanky. It's like watching a kid learn to walk. They're all over the place in it. But boy, there's something, there's a blessing to be had there. It's worth going through the embarrassing moments to enjoy prayer, worship, feasting, study of the word. Be awkward and do it for as long as it takes until it feels natural. Make a habit. If you do these things, verse 10, you will never stumble. If you do these things, stop struggling and start focusing on those. Honestly, the blessing that God has in our life and what he's prepared for us in our life, it is a never-ending, eternal blessing that goes with us throughout all of eternity. You can't take back knowledge. Once you have it, it's there. Once you have those patterns in life where you have obtained a precious faith, verse 1, by the righteousness of our God and our Savior Jesus Christ, it's of inestimable value in your life. To those who have obtained the precious faith, this is what God he wishes for us. Again, 2 Peter is awesome. I love reading kind of the deathbed letter of Peter because he's telling us all the wisdom he's learned throughout his life. And the most important thing he can think about is study the word. Be in it. And don't neglect the prophets. Read that stuff because none of it was in secret. It was all public. 
It was all God's gift to humanity to speak to humanity and tell them how to live. So take advantage of it and, and learn it and absorb it and, and be praising the fact that we have it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and the gift that it is. We thank you that we can study it. We thank you we can open it up. We thank you, Lord, that we can learn from it. And Lord, our flesh resists every one of these things at some level. So Lord, help us to continue to have our faith lead to virtue and our virtue lead to knowledge. Help us to start on those three first steps and to do it healthily and to keep coming back to it as we go through life. We need to be reminded of these basics. Even veteran mature believers need to be reminded uh, that faith is where it all starts. Uh, and we build virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance, Lord, because you've inspired us to do it. You've given us the strength to do it. And you haven't put us in any situation without the Holy Spirit to be a counselor and a guide and, and one that empowers us to overcome. So Lord, help us to be just more than getting along, but to be abundant and to be thriving in our spiritual lives. Help us, Lord, to be remembering those things so we have a foundation of knowledge uh, that gives us confidence and boldness. To what end, Lord? To the end of brotherly kindness and love. Help us to be people that serve sacrificially each other and to do it with no thought of ourselves and to know, Lord, that you have a promise that's built into those behaviors. So, Lord, give us what we need to do it. May the Holy Spirit be alive in our lives. May, may you help us to grow in love each day for one another. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.